0: Thanks, Eric, and thank you again to all of you for your kindness and generosity as I head out for a season here and know that uh, you're in my prayers, and I already look forward to uh, returning, that we can be together again in the days ahead. In the meantime, we're finishing a series next week, but today our theme in this ongoing series regarding one another is be of the same mind with one another. And so let's pray, and then we'll look at this text together. Father, thank you that as we gather within these walls and on the line, uh, that we gather as people of hope. Uh, we gather as people with a confidence regarding the trajectory of history, and yet we would also confess we don't always believe that, and we certainly don't always act in ways that are in accordance with that hope. I pray that your Spirit would shape us as a community uh, that we might show, as you prayed in John seventeen, a visible testimony of people united not by politics or ideology or philosophy or economic status or color of skin, but united because we share your life. May that be our story. Would you guide us there? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Romans 12, 8, uh, sixteen Romans twelve sixteen is a pretty profound verse that I want to uh, add to what Eric read, and it's also. In some ways, an alarming verse by virtue of the ways in which it's misused. Listen as I read, Romans 12, 16 says this be of the same mind toward one another. Same mind. And it's that phrase, same mind, that at times is dangerous because same mind is sometimes interpreted as everybody needs to think exactly the same way. And if that's the paradigm, if that's what we think that same mind means, Then those controlling the narrative, people with pulpits, people with massive Twitter feeds, influencers, then go to great lengths to bring conformity to their mind. Does that make sense? Uh, if you, uh, saw the movie years ago entitled The Lives of Others, it's a, it's a German film about life in East Germany before the wall came down in 1989. And if you know anything about life in East Germany, in uh, in those previous years, you know that there were what are called thought police, and the thought police would listen in on uh, private conversations in your home, even, and if you said a a joke about a politician at work, or if you said the wrong thing even at home or on the phone, uh, you could be whisked away, and never seen from again because you were a threat to the quote unquote. Same mind, and of course, if you've read uh, 1984, uh, there's some quotes from that book that have uh, 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 that elicit the same kind of imagery. You had to live, did live, from habit that became instinct, in the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every moment scrutinized. And so there's this there's this uh, culture that we should rightly fear of uniformity of thought, because if that's the goal, then uh, what happens is people vie for power, both on the left and the right, in order to control the narrative. Uh, who's going to rise to the role of thought police? And to be blunt, th- this problem is so intense right now in our culture that good people are leaving the political arena. Because they're tired of, frankly, uh, getting death threats based on how they vote. And it happens all the way down to the uh, level of school board uh, positions and all the way up to the level of senator, right? I hope, bleep, bleep, your bleep, bleep, bleep family dies because of this vote that you just uh, uh, cast in in Congress. Uh, that's the culture in which we live. And make no mistake about it, both sides are trying to control the narrative uh someone said to me recently uh i never watch meet the press anymore because there's no dialogue there's just scripted talking points that politicians receive uh before they go on on air uh knowing that if they uh, uh if they deviate from the talking points they're going to lose their committee position or lose their power and so there's no there's no dialogue there's no kind of motion towards truth there's just this kind of lust for power this is in itself tragic i get that but the greater tragedy is that if you fly over church history, you realize that the people of God have often, uh, kind of lowered themselves to that same level of dialogue and, and value and thought and discourse. We have become our own, uh, subcommittee vying for power. Who gets to be the thought police? You see in the Pharisees in the New Testament, I mean, they wanted to control the narrative of who defines the people of God. And therefore, when Jesus healed on the Sabbath, they were like this, gotcha. Now we can say to people, you're, you're not Messiah. And when this woman busted into the party in Luke 8 and began weeping at his feet, uh, offering unvarnished worship and love to the creator of the universe, uh, the response the Pharisees, yeah. If this guy were the Messiah, he'd know she's unclean. Gotcha. And again, John 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. <laughs> and the and the conclusion of the seminarians is this: Well, this proves we got to kill him because he's a threat to our narrative. Sound familiar? Well, that's the culture we live in. I get it. That's the cult. That's the world we live in. It's not supposed to be the world of the people of God. But if you look at your history, you see this over and over again. You see it in doctrinal wars and the lust for power between Augustine and Pelagius in the early, like, the 4th and 5th century. Later between Calvin and Arminius in the Renaissance period, and the Reformation. You see it in the Crusades. You see it in the Inquisitions. You see it in the witch hunts. You see it in the 19th century internal battles in the United States of America between churches in the north who declared blacks to be human, made in the image of God, and those in the south. Who said they weren't? And, and you see it in battles over women and leadership, over who's saved, what saved means, how people get saved. More recently, over issues related to faith and politics and vaccinations and masks. And it's so bad that Thanksgiving lists are changed. Families are divided. Like you could be sitting in a Bible study around a circle and somebody says something and it's, and it's kind of laced with a political overtone, and pretty soon people are shouting at each other, and then fellowship is broken. It, listen, this doesn't happen once in a while. It happens all the time. And these are examples of our misinterpretation of what being in the same mind means. It doesn't mean that if you and I disagree, I get the biggest Bible I can find and start whacking you with it. And I don't mean that literally, but I mean, look at this, you know? Like, Doctrinal grenades is what I call it. I've shared this story before, but I remember, you know, walking down toward Pike Place Market once, and this lady was handing out Bibles. And uh, I said to her, when she tried to hand me a Bible, I said, I don't need one. I'm I'm on your team. And she goes, oh, you're a Christian. I go, yeah. And then this was her next question. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit and given evidence of such baptism by speaking in tongues? And I said, well, I'm baptized with the Holy Spirit. Sure. Of course. But I don't speak in tongues. Well, then you're not a Christian. And she tries to shove a Bible in my hand like her Bible is going to give me to speak in tongues. And I go, oh, yes, I am a Christian. And she goes, prove it. All right. Give me that Bible. (laughs) I grab it from her. Boom. You know, and then her grenade back. Boom. And then my grenade back to her. Boom. And then you know, somebody's walking down the, toward the market to buy a slab of fish or whatever, and, and they see us arguing, and out of the corner of my eye, I watch her and Fred give a wide berth, and I, this is all I hear. That's why I left the church 10 years ago. Hey, congratulations, church. Look what we're doing. Like, we're mirroring the cultural narrative of division and polarization, and to the extent that it's ugly, and it is, we are missing the fulfillment of the last prayer that Jesus offered in John 17, uh, which was the, the 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 prayer that we would be united and that our unity, Jesus says our unity is our credibility. So how are we we it? Not so good. So then the question, this is a pretty important text then. What does it mean to be the same mind? If it's not thought police, what is it and how do we get there? And the answers are going to be found in what I call pyramid of unity. Now, I will be speaking to you for a couple of months here, and so I'm going to leave you, With more of a teaching than a preaching. And I mean, this is what I do. Like these are the back notes of a sermon, basically, right? I always think like pictorially. And so this morning you get Richard's Pyramid of Unity. It's not a, it's not a, like a, like an Amway scheme or anything. There's not a higher standing for those who tithe toward the top or something like that. It's just, let's kind of visualize here. Where culture lives on this bottom rung, how we're called to have a different foundation, the solid rock, what that solid rock means for our kingdom ethics, and then where that takes us at the end of the story. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to begin with this, this notion of the shifting sand, the bottom of the pyramid. So if you go back and you look at the people of God in the Old Testament, right? God said to Israel as a nation, look, I'm going to be your king. It's gonna, that's going to be awesome because, you know, I made the universe, so I know the best rules all that stuff. I'm your king. And when I'm reigning to the extent that you obey me, peace, justice, mercy, you're going to be generous. You're going to be a kind of a lending nation and you're going to shine as a light to with such brightness that everyone's going to know who the true God is because you're going to, you're going to be living it, right? Let me be king. Well, by the time you get to uh, the book of Samuel, first Samuel, uh, uh, chapter eight, Samuel's a prophet and the people go to Samuel and they say to Samuel, we want a king. And, Sam, and I'm paraphrasing, but Samuel's like this. You have a king. God. Oh, no, no, no. We want a king we can see, you know, like a king. Like all the other, the cool nations, they all have kings. We want a king. And then Samuel's like this. Really? Here, Here's the deal. If you have a king, here's what's going to happen. I mean, I wrote it all down. I'm going to look here. Yeah. Excessive taxes, loss of freedom, war, conscription of your sons and daughters in service of the king. Ultimately, there'll be factions and civil war because of cultural divides regarding who should be king. That's going to lead to internally—not never mind your neighbors—that internally, bloodshed, injustice, poverty, loss of freedom. But with with God as king, all the blessings promised to Deuteronomy twenty-eight, right? You know, peace, justice reigning, uh, you being a blessing to the nations. So choose here—you know—door A. Bloodshed, injustice, poverty, loss of freedom with a human king, or blessing, prosperity, abundance, and peace with God as your king. We choose door A. That's human nature. We want a king. It's in listen. It's inherent in our nature to want a, a human leader, and whatever leader we want, will exalt themselves by diminishing their competitors and creating factions. So it became in the nation of Israel the house of Saul versus the house of David and then it was the northern kingdom versus the southern kingdom and then it was in the early church I am of Paul I am of Apollos and then it was the Jewish based church versus the Gentile based church one worshipping on Saturday one worshipping on Sunday one demanding circumcision one not requiring circumcision then it was Augustine versus Pelagius and then it was Rome versus the Celtic Christians up in Scotland and Ireland and then it was Rome versus Luther and then it was Luther versus the Mennonites and the, Calvin, uh, the Calvinists until eventually we have 30,000 denominations. And when I type the word denomination in my notes, autocorrect changed it to demonizations, which is actually more appropriate anyway, right? Because, because our testimony is diminished every time we break fellowship, every time. Our testimony is diminished. And our culture divides uh, in this kind of this bottom level Our culture divides because it feeds on our longings to distinguish us, each of us, as kind of wiser, more powerful, but by creating an outsider and vilifying the outsider, and this is culture at its worst, and now we happen to live in an age where there are logarithms designed to incite what is the worst in us every time we open our computer. And so... I shared with you last week, you know, I've received a lot of encouraging notes. Thank you. Also, over the last year, these are just the ones that came to the top of my mind. I've been called an instrument of Satan. I've been told I worship a false Jesus. I've I've been told I'm a false teacher, a false prophet, a Nazi. I'm completely hard-hearted and blind, and I'm leading people straight to hell. Those are all in notes I've received as well. Thank you again. And I just want to let you know that this is the culture we live in, and the left has done this to the right, and the right has done this to the left, and the open and affirming crowd has done this to the traditional marriage crowd, and vice versa, and it's happened not just with big ideas, but with subset ideas, so that we, the people of God, are dividing, not up there somewhere, but down there. We're dividing over Black Lives Matter and, and uh, critical race theory and, and school curriculum and what to do with immigrants and a dozen other things, and we divide as Christ followers. Why? Because we're taking our cues from the culture, which divides. And I'm just going to say to you, that's wrong. We mirror the culture. They fight, we fight. They name-call, we name-call. They divide, we divide. Really? How about Romans 2? Oh, excuse me, Romans 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to this world, which J.B. Phyllis translates this way so beautifully. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Our passivity in swimming upstream against the cultural narrative means that the cultural narrative prevails, and when the cultural narrative prevails, we've been hijacked and duped into believing that the right king, read the right pastor, the right denomination, the right doctoral statement is the key to our shalom. It's not. You don't have a perfect doctoral statement. We don't have a perfect doctrinal statement. I don't have a per- perfect doctrinal statement. So look at Jesus. He, he tries to help us rise up one level, right? He lived in the midst of an empire far more corrupt than ours, far more oppressive. I mean, if you were a woman, a slave, a non-citizen, if you didn't own land... You essentially had no rights. And how much did he say about Caesar, by the way? Like, when the disciples got together, how much do you find any record of them discussing politics? Do you want to know? He mentioned Caesar once. And then when he, when he was on trial, and uh, you know, Pilate said, hey, don't you know I have authority over you? And he said, well, you wouldn't have any authority if God didn't give you authority. What kingdom are you talking about, says Pilate? And then here's Jesus: My kingdom is not of this world. Well, if that's if that's Jesus and He's really our King, then our kingdom is not of this world either. It's not of this party. It's not of this nation, even. So we have to we have to leave this level and move up to the solid rock, the next level. And the next level, if we go to that, uh, is Jesus, John eighteen thirty six. My kingdom is not of this world. Is Philippians 3.20, uh, uh, our citizenship is in heaven. Is Colossians 3.1, keep seeking the things that are above. Is Ephesians 4, verses 5 and 6. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. Watch this. One God and Father who is over all and in all and through all. All. Look around. People who believe in masks, people who hate them. People poked three times or ten. People who don't get any. People who thought the election was legit. People who still wonder. Same Jesus. That's the deal. We, the people of God, are called to fly above the culture wars. Called to embrace the starting, this is the starting point of fellowship. If I claim Christ as Lord, and my friend Ken, claims Christ as Lord, that's it, man. Why? Because it says in Hebrews, he, Christ then, is not ashamed to call either of us brother. And if we sit with each other long enough, we're going to find areas where we disagree, I promise you. But we share this, Christ is in him, Christ is in me, enough. That's the basis for fellowship. That's the basis for, for working together. So even if we vote differently, even if we have different views on issues like BLM, CRT, healthcare, immigration, and a hundred other things, if Christ lives in you and Christ lives in me, that's the basis of our fellowship. And, and, and Jesus is, we're told in Ephesians 4, he is above all, overall, in all, through all. That's the way it really is. And the reason we differ is because both of us have opinions that are not shaped by the Holy Spirit fully, but also shaped by our own story, my family, my culture, my upbringing, the people with whom I surround myself, my pain, my ambitions, all that stuff. Even shaped, yes, my theology. That's why two people who love the same Jesus, read the same Bible, go, "Oh no, you worship on Saturday." No, it's Sunday. Different views on a million things, but, but among people in whom the divine seed has been planted, and yet we don't all agree. So same mind, watch this, same mind doesn't mean that uh, there's this thought police and it's uniformity of thought. It doesn't mean that. Same mind means, and the scriptures tell us this in Colossians, it means this, I have the mind of Christ, Ken has the mind of Christ, but I also have my own mind that's still in the process of being you know, transformed. And Ken still has his own mind in the process of being transformed. And through fellowship, we, you know, we climb the mountain, we climb the pyramid together. We cut, we gain the mind of Christ through fellowship and humility. But we don't have it yet, not that full understanding. But to gain that understanding, we must be in fellowship with people who think differently than us. And I just got to say this, this is the gift that is Bethany Community Church. To Seattle. It says it, right, all over the place. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. It's what drew me through the door the first time, 1976. It's what keeps me here today. It's It's this notion that shared life in Christ plus nothing is God's vision for the church. We don't do it perfectly, but that is our aspirational goal. That though we don't agree on everything, we do agree on this. Jesus is Lord, and history's headed in the right direction, and we're called to, by the power of Christ, make what is coming visible. And we can work together on that, even if we don't vote the same, because, by the way, voting the same is shifting sand. And, you know, if you travel, you know that. I I have friends in um, in Germany who... Tell me stories of their grandparents who fought in the war and, and how the church divided in the, in the, in the thirties in Germany. The church divided in the United States in the 1850s, 1860s. The church is dividing again today in the United States. And here's the thing. We must swim upstream against that division and, and bring people together under the banner of Christ and say that shared life in Christ is the base of fellowship. But that requires then that we collectively work on uh, displaying the character of Christ. And it's that work of displaying that will bring us together, right? And so um, what does it mean to pursue kingdom ethics, like what I call high-flying ethics? What does that mean? Well, I it mean, it's basically three things. We have to, first of all, seek the peace of all creation. Second, act in ways that further justice, not oppression. And third, make choices that are in keeping with our calling as stewards. Now, there could be more, but those are the things we're going to look at now. In other words, if Christ is in you and Christ is in me, then uh, we know that we're called uh, to, to seek the shalom of God, the peace of God for all creation. How do we know that? Well, uh, several reasons. I take you first to Jeremiah 29. Uh, uh, the people of God were, in Jeremiah 29, sent into exile, and they found themselves plunked down in Babylon, the most idolatrous uh, culture in the history of the world, right? Idols everywhere. And then God says to, uh, through Jeremiah to the nation of Israel, Israel's like this, you know what? We're just going to kind of chill here. For uh, a, a little while, the false prophets had said this: "Don't don't bother getting to know your neighbors, because you know really soon I'm gonna yank you out of Babylon, and you're gonna be you know again you're gonna be on your on your own. So don't worry about don't worry about Babylon. Babylon's just going to hell in a handbasket." And then Jeremiah comes along. What does he say to the people living there? I mean, get this. You, th- you thought from the previous pastor who spoke last Sunday, this is hypothetical, <laughs> right? You thought the other guy said, "Yeah, you know, in a year, all this ends. Jesus returning." Have you ever heard that phrase, "Jesus returning"? 1977. I mean, in 1976, this is what I heard on the New Year's Eve service: "We're going to heaven in 77." And then 77 came and went. Chris, uh, New Year's Eve, 1977. It's gonna be great in 78 because Jesus is returning. 78. Christmas Eve, 78. Or New Year's Eve. Gonna be fine in 79. So I stopped attending because I was like, this I'm so tired of being told every year, this is it, you're getting yanked out of Babylon. What did Jeremiah say? Hey, here you are in Babylon. What should what, what should you do? Buy a house. What? Yeah, and have kids. And in watch this, in Babylon, go to your kids' wedding and their kids' wedding too. Now you can the calendar is working in your brain. And you're like this. Well, what do we do while we're here? Glad you asked, says Jeremiah. Work for the good of the place I've called you. Which by the way is Seattle for most of us in the room or if you're thinking a little bit broader, the Pacific Northwest. Find your watershed and know, who lives there? What are your neighbors' names? What do they do for a living? What does it mean that we have one of the greatest universities in the world three miles from this campus? And that at the same time, uh, those university students are dealing with massive issues of inner turmoil and insecurity, body image issues, and and self-loathing and insecurity, in spite of the keen intellect. Like, what does that mean for us? That's our conversation. How can we bless the student population that is Seattle? How can how how can we how can we bless the homeless population, the unhoused that is the Seattle? How can we bless the immigrants that are coming our way? How can we bless those that are hungry on Aurora in need of food? Well, I'll tell you how. There's you, you can in your little bulletin today. You can sign up to serve breakfast to to, to our unhoused neighbors and there's ways to get involved in in, in in student ministries and caring for students in our city, and there's ways to get involved in uh, uh, bringing dignity to Afghan refugees who have come our way, no matter what you think of Afghanistan, here they are. So, so look, that's what binds us together, do you see? Not who we voted for, not what you think about a mask. You have a calling to work for the good of the place where you live. Seek the shalom of every human, because everyone is created in the image of God. Everyone is an image bearer. And our job is to, is to bless and love and awaken the image of God in every human. So we seek the peace of all creation. We act in ways that further justice, not oppression. I mean, this was Jesus' mission statement in Luke 4. He said, look, I've come to set the captive free, to open the eyes of the blind, to unstop the ears of the deaf, uh, to, to deliver those who are suffering from oppression and, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the year of Jubilee, a year of forgiving debts. We have a good message. God is for justice, for healing, for community, for reconciliation, for hope, for beauty, for creativity. Why in God's name, Are we known then in the world by what we're against? We have to reframe that narrative by acting in ways that further justice, not oppression. And it's helpful then if we see ourselves on a trajectory toward making God's reign visible, because that's our calling. And that's our calling no matter our politics. I mean, I have a friend who lives down at the Texas border who is quite conservative regarding his views of immigration and he's, but he's quite. He's also quite involved in a ministry of bringing food and clothing and shelter uh, to those that are in his town who have crossed the border, because he says to me, "Look, it doesn't matter what I think at a political level. This guy's hungry, and so my calling in Jesus' name is to give him food." And Jesus says, "Have yeah, you give a cup of cold water in my name? That's the kingdom of God. So get on with it. That's our calling, not dividing." So we seek the peace of all creation. We act in ways that further justice and not oppression. And then we make even consumer choices that are in keeping with our calling as, as stewards, right? In other words, uh, seeking things that are above in Colossians 3.1, that's Paul's language, seeking things that are above, doesn't mean that we disengage because it's all going to burn anyway. No, it means that we seek the ethics of God's reign, and God's kind of locale in the Scriptures is above, so we're taking God's reign and making it visible right here on the earth. James Watt, Reagan's secretary of the interior, he said, when the last tree is felled, Jesus will return, so let's get cutting. That's a misunderstanding of, of eschatology, which is a misunderstanding of the end times. We, we, don't, we don't kind of cheer when the world gets worse because it's a sign that Jesus is returning. Jesus returns when Jesus returns. In the meantime, we're people of hope, you see? So there's our calling here. Seek the peace of all creation, act in ways that further justice, and and make choices that are in keeping with our calling as stewards. So in contrast to the escapism of kind of this this idea that it's all going to burn anyway, so let's hasten the return of Jesus by cutting down the trees, In contrast to that, you see Isaiah's vision for the future is not that we're airlifted out of here. It's that, it's that Christ reigning here on the earth means that racism ends. The environment is healed. Nobody's lonely or afraid or hungry or sick. And if you, if you want to kind of unpack some of that, uh, you know, read Isaiah 11, read Isaiah 65, read Isaiah 2, read Isaiah 9. Nobody's lonely. Nobody's afraid. Nobody's hungry. Nobody's sick. So, so everything that we do that gives visibility to what Christ will bring fully later, when we do that, that's our calling. That's giving the cup of water in Jesus' name. So we're called to make God's character visible, and when we're doing that, uh, we're living into our calling, we're aligned with God, and and we have access to strength and joy. I love Bethany in part because we're partnering with people all over the world to do that in, in pretty big ways. As you heard last week, in this little region of Musanze in Rwanda we're helping 165,000 people with economic empowerment with clean water with medical care with with some teaching on uh, abstinence and monogamy in 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 family and sexuality all kinds of things all contributing to the outworking of God's reign so that so that families are healed and marriages are healed and bodies are healed and relationships are reconciled that's our work and when we're about that we have the power of God behind us. And finally, you know, we need to go up to the, the last level or the end of the story. Uh, in 1 John 3, 12 and 1 Corinthians 13, 12, uh, we, we hear from God that in this moment right now, until Christ returns, we don't see everything perfectly. It says that in 1 John 3, 2, it says we, don't, we have not yet seen what we will be. We don't yet even know our, the best version of ourselves. We don't know it. And in 1 Corinthians 13, it says this, we see through a glass darkly. How many of you have ever put your glasses on? My eyes aren't too bad. And there are times when I put my glasses on, I'm like this, it's better with them off because they're so dirty. Has anyone else ever done that? So, are you, Or are they just are foggy or whatever, right? You walk into a room, you've been outside, it's cold, you walk in, it's foggy, and then you have to take them off if you're going to see. Well, here's the thing: we're stuck with foggy lenses in this moment, and for that reason, we don't all agree on masks and vacs and and you know elections and school boards and CRT and BLM and ABC and anything else. We just don't agree. Okay, that's fine. We don't, but it says we do anticipate this day when we will see fully, right? And until we see fully, what God has done for us is God has painted us pictures of what the fullness looks like. And my favorite picture is in Isaiah 25. Listen to this. So this is, now we're looking ahead. And when we see clearly, here's here's what we'll see. On this mountain, there's a mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, well-aged wine, uh, rich food full of marrow and aged well-refined wine. Are you with me? So, you know, great wine, and uh, for those paleo folks in the room, bone broth. That's kind of the meal here. But watch this. Again, this is for all peoples. So, I mean, just think about in the room, or think about in your sphere, those with whom you've broken fellowship because of masks or because of uh, an election, or because of your view on interest rates or inflation or whatever. Think about people who you no longer have fellowship with. Guess what? Uh, they, they claim Christ too? They're at the table with you. And once we're at the table together, here's the thing. No one cares about that other stuff anymore. Because we all have then the mind of Christ. And we're enjoying this meal. And, and when we're all together, my red friends and my blue friends and my purple friends and my friends with this view of marriage and that view of marriage and my friends with this view of, of liberty and that view of, and guns and, and CRT and BLM and the guy from Wisconsin who shot people, like when we're, like all these things that divide us, now we're at the meal and it's all behind us because Christ is the with a devon article, of the source of unity. And then this is what we say. He will swallow up death forever. The Lord will wipe away every tear from every face, every disease healed. The reproach of his people will be taken away from the earth. And it will be said on that day by all of us. It will be said on that day, this is the God for whom we have waited. This is it, man. This is where history's headed. Do you believe it? I do. Because I see hints of it over and over and over again in history. God making real. His invisible rain. That's why it's so appropriate today that we celebrate communion. In a different way, but it's nonetheless communion. And the reason it's so appropriate is because when Jesus shared this meal for the first time for what would be called the church, the dozen with whom he shared the meal were incredibly diverse. Intellectuals, illiterate fishermen. Uh, tax collectors at the behest of Rome, zealots who hated tax collectors. And they're all at the table together. And Jesus said, he didn't have to struggle opening this thing the way I do. Jesus said, this is the source of strength for you. And that you in that text is plural. It's Texan, y'all. For you, Peter, who can't read, For you, Nathaniel, intellectual, UW grad, for you, Ballard Fisherman, (laughs) for you, uh, JBLM military guy, and you, pacifist, (laughs) all of us, that's pretty powerful. So eat because we share life. And then he took the cup and he he tried to remove the foil and he couldn't. (laughs) And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood shed for you. This is, you're forgiven. Listen, not just of those overt sins, you and I, guess what? We're forgiven for being who we are. A little bit blind, a little bit prideful, a little bit prone to fighting back on the, on the internet. You're forgiven. Why? This covers everything. My blood. As we worship together, let's pray for those relationships in our lives in need of restoration, reconciliation, and healing that we can indeed display the unity of the body of Christ. Let's worship together.